The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Wednesday, October 10th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So Facebook, I've heard of Facebook, large company, giving away your data, 50 million of you. Facebook is like Australia. Follow me here. Founded by disruptors. In one case, it was criminals. In the other, tech geeks. Both had similar early mission statements. Facebook, move fast and break things. Australia, let's pollute the Great Barrier Reef. But mostly, I think it's about each one's relationship with invasive species. So with Australia, you got your feral donkeys. They have a population of about 5 million. They eat a lot of grass. They are not native to Australia. And so they've decided the Australians have, we need to shoot them from helicopters. And shooting them from helicopters, they are, it is called mustering the donkeys. Donkeys can also be sterilized to control their populations. But you try to find a donkey donk doctor in Perth this time of year, if you know what I'm saying. The state of Victoria pays $10 for every feral fox that is killed. They have paid over a million dollars in bounties this year, which is like Facebook. Facebook has this nice little ecosystem, they thought, but all these invasive species just running wild with hacks and scammers and fake news and phishing scams. And all they try to do is is shoot them from helicopters, just try to eliminate them one by one. But it's overrun. Why? Well, donkeys just don't belong in Australia. And Facebook just cannot be trusted with your data. Why would we think it could be? Facebook is optimized to spread information, not to contain it. It would be like if the town gossip also had a job as the intake clerk at the hospital and was a proficient ham radio operator. You know how Houdini explained that some of the reason that he was able to be an escape artist is that safes, for instance, I don't know why we don't say saves, but safes, for instance, were designed not to be broken into as opposed not to be broken out of. It's the same with Facebook. Facebook is a fire hose, not a filter. Now contrast this with Google. Google also had a data breach. Facebook, 50 million. Data, 500,000. All right, so 1% of the size. And then in response to this, they just shut down the whole service. There is no more Google+. Plus. It was a screw-up, but it was a bold fix. Now, true, Google+, Plus wasn't doing much business for Google, but I have a theory on this. Theory one is that all businesses with plus in their name kind of suck, like Blinds Plus, and there was a short-lived pizza place in my town called Pizza Plus. Calzones, I guess Calzones were the plus. If you don't care enough to think of a good name, you don't care enough about your business. But Google Plus was also a failure because it is in the same business or tried to be in the same business as Facebook. And that is a crap business. I don't mean it's not remunerative. I mean, it's slathering society in crap. Facebook as a brand, to me, the associations I have are something loud and garish and depressing, like a Hardee's or a Huddle House. You know Huddle House? Huddle House is like an off-brand Waffle House, but at least Huddle House knows what it is. 
this incompetent, incautious, half-assed brand that is Facebook is a menace to accuracy and it is an accelerator of anxiety. I just wonder for how long can this, what seems to me this shambles of a company in every way, except that it makes a ton of money, this shambles of a company convince us that it is irreplaceable. Well, at the same time, having a major headline every month, a headache headline every month. Namaste, Mark Zuckerberg. Please move quickly to fix things. On the show today, I spiel about a seemingly unconstitutional attack on abortion. But first, Saudi Arabia has not only reportedly killed a dissident journalist, and that's why they're in the news in the immediate sense, but they've been overseeing and funding and participating in a war in Yemen that has been going on for years and the bodies have been piling up. That is, of course, to some extent, the nature of war. But America seems to be entirely uninterested in curtailing the actions of our great oil-producing ally. Though, maybe the question is, what could America even do if the Trump administration wanted to? Actually, I happen to know that definitely is a question among the many that I am about to put to an expert on the war in Yemen, Michael Knights is up next. The ongoing war in Yemen is one of the worst humanitarian catastrophes in the world today. An estimated 50,000 have died of famine resulting from the war. The war itself has killed 10,000, possibly more combatants. What is so confusing to me is the disparity in resources between the two quote-unquote sides of the war. The Saudis are the main actor pursuing the Houthi rebels. And Saudi Arabia, depending on which measure you use, spends either the third or fourth most on their military of any country in the world. And of course, a major military supplier of the Saudis is the United States, which by far spends the most on its military. On the other side, you have Yemen, which according to a prominent ranking of the world's most prosperous societies, and they rank 149 societies, Yemen ranks 149th. That doesn't mean they're not without military backers, but we seem to have an extremely rich, well-funded source on one side against extremely poor combatants on another. How has this war been dragging on for so long? Joining me now to answer some of these questions is Michael Knights. He's a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, specializes in Iraq, Iran, the Persian Gulf, now Yemen. (laughs) Thank you for doing this. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. So sometimes very, very poor societies based on measures like average income don't reflect the fact that the militaries are well-funded and, in fact, the militaries are um, a source of poverty in the country. Is that what's going on in Yemen? Well, it's certainly true that in Yemen, the military was favored by the former regime of ousted President Ali Abdullah Saleh. The military was often running the diesel fuel smuggling networks within the country, so it kept control of many of the key levers of power. Uh, But one thing I would say is that this isn't a conflict between Saudi Arabia and Yemen, per se. Saudi Arabia is actually trying to restore the legitimate Yemeni government uh, to their capital in Sana'a. It's actually even more of a disparity of uh, resources because it's really a war between Saudi Arabia, the other Arab Gulf states, including the UAE, 
and significant portions of the Yemeni government and military that are still with the government versus a clan from the northern highlands of Yemen called the Houthis who have managed to draw other tribal groups towards them and to take over many of the military arsenals that were formerly held by the Yemeni government. Now, if I ask a question like, how is it that such a well-funded military can't crush a group of uh, ragtag rebels, it would seem like I haven't learned any lessons of Afghanistan, Vietnam, etc. But what's the specific dynamic going on in Yemen? So the specific dynamic between the Yemeni government and its Gulf backers versus the Houthi rebels is that the Houthis are primarily defending the mountainous highlands of Yemen, which is very good defensive terrain. And they're very experienced fighters. They've been fighting the Yemeni government consistently since 2004. And they've been very effective at creating alliances with other tribal groups. And in a place like Yemen, if you drop a bomb on a group of Houthi fighters, you will end up killing people from other tribes as well. And those tribes have now been drawn together with the Houthis, whereas they wouldn't have been very friendly to them 10 years ago because a Saudi Arabian bomb dropped in one of their villages. Uh, They're now willing to support the Houthis. So this is classic guerrilla warfare, whereby the massive resources of a state cannot be fully brought to bear against uh, this kind of guerrilla opponent. The guerrillas have terrain, they have tribal connections, and they have a very long history of fighting uh, to defend their specific areas. Are the Saudi ground forces themselves elite? Because we quoted statistics about how much the government spends on the military, but that doesn't necessarily mean the fourth best military in the world just because it's the fourth most expensive. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, And in some cases, the size of Saudi armed forces, which is pretty considerable, it sort of holds them back in terms of the development of their own military. So Saudi Arabia has bought very large numbers of combat aircraft, ships, surface-to-air missiles, artillery systems, tanks, but it doesn't really have the trained manpower base to actually field all of these weapon systems, and it hasn't been involved in many wars. As a result, the Saudi military spends a lot of money but it doesn't have a great deal of capability to undertake offensive operations into a place like Yemen, which would be difficult for any military, let alone an inexperienced military like the Saudi military. However, the Saudis do have some elements uh, that are better than others. Their air force is pretty good. Their special forces and airborne forces are pretty good, and they are only using a very small number of ground forces within Yemen itself, parts of six brigades. So maybe you could say about 5,000 troops in all. They're primarily supporting Yemeni military forces and tribes uh, to do the fighting on the ground. Well, yeah, tell me about that. Why are the Saudis not committing as much as they could in terms of ground forces, besides the rebels or besides uh, Yemeni forces, I should say? Which other countries are involved? You know, what's the strategy and what's been the effect? (laughs) So the Saudis have a pretty limited aim of carving out a buffer zone along the Saudi-Yemeni border uh, to make their own cities and civilians safer. The Saudis want the Yemenis to do most of the actual fighting, 
And they've also brought in large numbers of Sudanese forces to operate alongside the Yemenis to provide the bulk of the ground forces. And you can imagine that neither Yemeni forces nor Sudanese forces are very high-quality offensive forces able to do lightning tank attacks or uh, take large amounts of ground very quickly. It's a very slow-moving war where the front line moves forward by a couple of kilometers a month. And that means, you know, this war could potentially go on for a very, very long time. We should point out this is also not a proxy war. Uh, Houthi rebel um, missiles have landed in the airports in the Saudi capital. So they do share a border and there's not zero risk. Or you tell me, is there any real risk of damage to Saudi Arabia itself from some of these Houthi rebels? Yeah, when Saudi Arabia looks at its neighbor, Yemen, it looks at it the same way that the U.S. might look at Mexico or Cuba. And we all remember how aggressively the U.S. reacted when they found that uh, the Soviets were emplacing nuclear weapons in Cuba, for instance, in the 1960s. Some threats are just not acceptable to Saudi Arabia. And one of them is to have an Iranian-backed country on the Arabian Peninsula, right next to Saudi Arabia. And the Saudis are very concerned that the Iranians will eventually gain a lot of influence with the Houthis in Yemen, right next door. Even now, the Houthis are firing scores of missiles every year at Riyadh and other major cities in Saudi Arabia, and they're firing hundreds of missiles and artillery systems at the border towns inside southern Saudi Arabia, which has actually led to a number of Saudi towns being entirely depopulated and evacuated, the closure of international airports and uh, major industrial facilities. Is there anything that can be done to mitigate the humanitarian uh, catastrophe that's going on short of just one side winning? Yeah, um, one obvious thing is to reduce the number of these high-risk strategic airstrikes that Saudi Arabia is undertaking within Yemen. Mm-hmm. And that's when they are going into the Houthis' home towns and they are trying to kill leadership figures or they're trying to destroy surface-to-surface missile launchers that are being used to strike the Saudi capital of Riyadh. And those strikes are extremely dangerous and carry very high risk of collateral damage. They very rarely kill a Houthi leader. And even when they do, another Houthi leader just pops up into their place and a load more tribesmen uh, gather to the Houthi cause because their leader got killed. So a very easy thing to do would be to stop the strategic airstrikes in Yemen, which will reduce the amount of collateral damage and will probably make, for instance, the U.S. Congress much less angry at Saudi Arabia, much less likely to cut off weapons transfers and other assistance. But it's the United States. I mean, obviously, the United States supplies the majority of the arms to Saudi Arabia. Were the United States to object to these missions, these missions wouldn't happen, you're saying? I think it's more the case that if the Saudis stop undertaking these high-risk bombing strikes, then their relationship with the U.S. Congress will improve. Mm -hmm. If the U.S. cuts off the provision of precision-guided munitions, the smart bombs, 
then the Saudis will do two things. They'll buy smart bombs from someone else, uh, like the French or the British or the Russians, and they'll start to use unguided weapons, causing even more collateral damage. So I don't think the solution is to cut off the provision of these weapons. I think what would make a lot more sense is for the Saudis to simply stop striking high-risk targets, which would improve their relations with the U.S. and would also reduce this counterproductive strikes that don't gain them anything, but really damage their reputation internationally and thus make it easier for the Houthis to ultimately win this war. So the war dates back to 2015 when Obama was in office. But of course, President Trump's first foreign trip was to Saudi Arabia. He's frequently complimented the leadership of Saudi Arabia and hasn't really ever said anything about putting brakes or control on what they've been doing in this war. Has who is sitting in the Oval Office affected this war at all? I think that the Saudi Arabian government and the other coalition allies undertook the war in Yemen because they did not feel confident that the United States government then under President Obama was going to act against an expansion of Iranian influence in Yemen. So they went and did it themselves. And the Gulf Coalition committed their armed forces. And amazingly, uh, within a period of less than a month, began a military operation when none of those countries had ever actually launched a major war on their own before. And they're still fighting it now in 2018. The new resident of the Oval Office has had much less to do with Yemen, honestly. It hasn't shown up on his radar much, uh, except that President Trump was horrified to receive intelligence reporting about the potential scale of the famine in Yemen. And that briefly focused him on the issue. Uh, But I think the people to watch in U.S. government are people like Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and also Secretary of Defense James Mattis. And they have been sending tough messages uh, to the Saudis that they need to reduce the amount of collateral damage incidents they're causing and that they need to support an internationally led peace process on Yemen. And here's my last question. Just looking at the disparities as we've chronicled between the combatants um, or among the combatants, if you want to take the coalition into account, are we just past the point where any superpower should think that any rebellion can be put down relatively easily? No, I think ultimately when a superpower or a large power commits to a conflict, they can generally wear down an insurgency and achieve some of their victory objectives. I think finding the right moment to stop is the most tricky part. Let's just use Yemen as an example. Mm -hmm. When the coalition led by Saudi Arabia entered the war in 2015, they did so to stop the Houthi rebels from gaining control of the entire country. Now, at this point in 2018... The government has liberated the second largest city in Yemen, Aden. It controls almost all of the coastline of Yemen, including all of the oil and gas rich areas of the country. And it is uh, presently halfway through the liberation of the third and fourth largest cities in the country. And that still leaves the Houthis with the capital, Sana'a, but it very likely leaves them landlocked unable to communicate with their external sponsor, Iran, 
and lacking in any resources such as oil or gas. It's just difficult to find the right moment to call a, call it quits and to hand over to uh, local proxies, local governments to take the war onwards from there or to engage in a peace deal with the insurgents. You know, I think the transition between fighting rebels and insurgents and striking political deals with them is probably the trickiest part of these kinds of wars. Michael Knights is Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you. And now the spiel. There is a podcast that I like called Pod Save the People. And while it does fall into the category of three people agreeing with each other, which seems to be the most popular form of podcast these days, it gives me some good news. That's what I like about it. Not good news, but it's good with giving me news. Now, to be fair, all the other, all the other Pod Save podcasts, uh, they're usually three people agreeing with each other. Sometimes there are only two people agreeing with each other, but sometimes it gets up to four or five people agreeing with each other. Like you'll have one of those shows that'll have four panelists on it, and then they'll interview a Democrat running for office, or they'll throw in the monkey ranch and have a three panelist show, but, but interview two Democrats running for office. Pod Save the People does something that's a little bit better and more interesting than that. And by the way, I don't mean to slag them off too much. I just wish they mixed it up, wish all of these panel podcasts mixed it up a little bit, throwing that out there. Okay, so Pod Save the People brings me news. And it's often news that I don't know, but I often feel like I should have known it or I could have known it. And this week they had a fact that I really should have known but didn't know. And before I tell you that fact, I will tell you a couple of things that we all should know. But there is this one guy who takes up all the attention in America. You know the guy I'm not going to talk about. So we all should know, and I mentioned this in the opening of the show, that Saudi Arabia seems to have killed a journalist named Jamal Khashoggi. He walks into the embassy in Turkey. He asks for some forms he needs for his upcoming marriage. And they purposefully murder him to keep him from criticizing them. Saudi Arabia, do you know this, performs lower than Iran in the Freedom House rankings of the freest countries. And yet it couldn't be a bigger U.S. ally. This isn't only on the Trump administration. The allyship with the United States goes back generations. But it is the first country President Trump visited when he went overseas. And let's be honest, state-sponsored murder is very much a tactic of Saudi Arabia. It is on the same level as, say, in America, a stupid press conference where the president gets told a fact about hurricanes then points to a map. It is normal, but maybe not well known, though it could have been. But I don't want to bum you out. All the stuff that we could know or should know, it's not all bad stuff. Like you might know that Banksy sold a painting at Sotheby's and then it self-destructed. This should be the biggest story that everyone is talking about. Not that it's important, just that it's fascinating, right? This should occupy our mental space like D.B. Cooper did in 1971 or that Janet Jackson's Super Bowl boob did in 2004. It's not necessarily vital to focus on, but it's nice to have the opportunity to focus on something else. Not with that guy. You know, the one I'm talking about, the one who's pointing at the map. Well, now I'm going to tell you the fact, the fact that you should know the fact that I heard on Pod Save the People. It's this. There is now only one abortion clinic in the state of Missouri. Now, occasionally, you hear a similar fact about a different state, that that state is down to one clinic. Sometimes states even go to no clinics. In 2006, I traveled to South Dakota because South Dakota had recently enacted a law and they were down to one abortion clinic in Sioux Falls, 
went there. It's kind of fascinating. The states with one, sometimes zero abortion clinics are right now, Kentucky, West Virginia, Mississippi, both Dakotas, Wyoming, and Missouri. Now, all of those states are red and small, although Missouri isn't small. And that's the thing. Missouri is Republican dominated on the state level, has a Republican governor, both houses overwhelmingly Republican. They love passing anti-abortion laws, but it's an above average state in terms of uh, population. Of all the states I read, four of them, the populations of four of them could fit inside Missouri, and Missouri has millions more people than Kentucky or Mississippi. And the fact that blows my mind about Missouri having one abortion clinic is they have two really big cities, St. Louis and Kansas City. So which one is it? Which large metropolitan area doesn't have an abortion clinic in the state? The answer is Kansas City, though there are abortion clinics on the Kansas side. St. Louis is the only operating abortion clinic in the state of Missouri. They used to have one, and this was actually the last one that closed, not the Kansas City one. They used to have one in the college city, the college town of Columbia, Missouri, but it was shut down because there was a state law that required abortion clinics to have admitting privileges at local hospitals and to function as an ambulatory surgery center. Now, if you pay attention to abortion law, this may register in your mind. Wait a minute. Yeah, you're right. In 2015, the Supreme Court ruled in Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt that those tactics to say that you can't perform an abortion unless you have admitting privileges in a hospital amounted to an undue burden on a woman's right to have an abortion. The Supreme Court was pretty clear. It was called the biggest victory for abortion rights since Casey versus Planned Parenthood. But the Eighth Circuit, the court that allowed a Missouri law to go into effect, I think just ignored the Supreme Court. I mean, they came out with verbiage and ruling why the local state law that wound up shutting down the Columbia abortion clinic was a little different than the law that the Supreme Court ruled on. But it seems that their logic is threadbare. What could be going on was that the decision in Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt, that that decision was a 5-3 decision. But you know who the three were. The three were Justices Alito, Thomas, and Roberts. They were in the minority. But look at the math. If you add Gorsuch and if you add Kavanaugh, that 5-3 decision not allowing that onerous practice on abortion clinics could easily become a 5-4 decision allowing it. So the local court of appeals, and they made this ruling just a couple weeks ago while the Kavanaugh hearings were going on. The local court of appeals, whatever their logic, could just be saying, you know what? If this goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, we think they'll rule in our favor. So now one abortion clinic, it's in St. Louis. To confirm this was the case, because frankly, I could not believe it. I did a Google search for abortion providers in Kansas City. And there, like I said, are a couple on the Kansas side. But there were also a few listed in Google. And the first one was Planned Parenthood. I went to their online site where they said you could schedule an appointment. But it did list every date as closed. So I called the Planned Parenthood Clinic in Kansas City, which actually doesn't go to Kansas City. It's something called Planned Parenthood of the Great Plains, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Missouri. And they told me no. There is no abortion clinic anymore in Kansas City. They know of no other abortion clinic. They believe there is no other abortion clinic in the state besides the one I'm talking about in St. Louis. So they confirmed that. But there were a lot of other listings for abortion services in Kansas City, Missouri. So I investigated 
It was as I suspected. These weren't and aren't abortion clinics. These are crisis pregnancy centers. You know what those are? They try to talk women, if I'm being kind, talk women or scare women out of abortions. Their website, I went to a few of their, the Parkville Women's Clinic. I went to the website under abortion and it says this, while abortion is not the only choice when encountering an unplanned pregnancy, many women feel it is the only option. You might still be in school lacking in financial and emotional support, or you feel like you just can't be a parent right now. On the website, it's the soft sell. What they want to do is get you into their clinic where presumably they give you the hard sell. So if you go to Rachel House, which is another crisis pregnancy center that Google lists as an abortion clinic, the first thing you encounter is schedule an appointment. There, under abortion options, Rachel House says, We have accurate and educational information to help you during this decision-making process. However, Rachel House does not perform or refer for the actual abortion procedure. Yeah, they don't perform the actual abortion because they are actually opposed to abortion and their purpose and their funding and their mission is to attempt to dissuade, I might be being kind, dissuade women from getting abortions. They don't provide the actual abortion in the same way that James Jones did not provide the actual Kool-Aid. On the site, they have this slogan, we inform, you decide. Under that, click here to make an appointment today. Look, this is America. If an anti-abortion activist wants to honestly persuade women using actual facts, go ahead, be fair about it, be above board. And you know what? It's America. If you want to persuade using lies, we can't really stop that either. But these lambs of God are more wolves in sheep's clothing. I don't think they shouldn't exist. I just think the potential customer should know the true nature of the hustle before clicking on that appointment. You know, have information to help you decide. My truck right here, right now, is not even against them. This is a critique of Google. These clinics, they're very much a type of fake news, and Google does nothing to alert women of this. They provide them under the rubric Abortion Clinics Kansas City. Google it yourself. You'll see. They could do many things. They could list those services and do many things to inform users of Google what these clinics are really about. Like the star rating. I mean, if you look up Parkville Women's Clinic, it tells you they got 4.2 out of 5 stars. All right. It was only five ratings. And a woman named Brooke says, awesomely friendly staff and beautiful atmosphere. And Bob Havorka, I trust Bob Havorka, says, what a great place. The people are very friendly and will bend over backwards to help answer your questions. Like, tell me how bad an abortion is. No, I I added that part. There is one person in those ratings who says this. Sarah Conklin says, this is not an abortion clinic, nor will they give you accurate information about all your choices. This is a religious organization who will lie and shame you for considering an abortion. They lie about possible complications and side effects. They lie about gestation, whatever they can say to shame you enough to carry a pregnancy. Stay away. One bad review, one one one-star review amongst the five-star reviews. So it looks like it has a pretty good rating. Look, if I was searching for Band-Aids on Google and I saw one brand had a 4.2 star rating, but there was one review that said, you should know this is not a Band-Aid, this is actually a razor, I would think if that rating were accurate, Google could do something to let me know about it, to elevate it. 
Like I said, it is not hard for Google to accurately convey to the public information the public should know. If you Google abortion clinics in Kansas City and a lot of other cities, you get three or four or more times as many crisis pregnancy centers, which are the opposite of abortion clinics. This would be like Googling poison control and getting links to arsenic. It is especially important, for my opinion, for employees of Google to know about this and to care about this because the people most affected who could most be victimized by this inaccuracy are often poor, confused, undereducated, and desperate women in the middle of the country, which are adjectives that in general do not apply to Google employees. So Missouri is down to one abortion clinic, but several fake ones, according to America's third or fourth wealthiest company, which claims to be in the technology and information space. And that's it for today's show. PRBNMA and Daniel Schrader enjoyed our interview with Michael Knights, but we're hoping to get him to tell us what Hasselhoff is really like. TJ Raphael, Slate senior producer, always wanted a Knight Rider spinoff starring Devin, the upper crust corporate head who underwrites Michael's activity. See, in episode two, we'd get Devin to read a Batman or Iron Man comic book and realize, oh my God, I could have been the guy who also drove the car. Lost out on a lot of fun that way. Probably avoided some personal problems, though. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He always wanted a different doctor at St. Allegis to provide the voice of Kit's wacky rival. Imagine Ed Bagley as Caboodle. The gist. If I landed Michael Knights today, how far off are we from booking Alf? Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>